episode 26 of the Treatment Room Secrets podcast. Um, good to be here with you, John Wilkes. Thank you for being here. Nice to see you again. Um, again, yes. Um, we're here in uh, in fr in Froome. 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 Yeah. Um, and it's in Somerset, correct? Somerset, as they say here. So, oh, Somerset, yeah. I heard that you guys uh, here have, we have a bit of an accident. An accident, right? Yeah, a couple of people warned me. I also, um, coincidentally, I'm reading this book. Um, it's called The Black Count. Um, oh, really? It's about yeah. a uh, French guy, a soldier who rose to be like a French uh -huh. hero. Uh, back in the 1700s-ish, I believe. Right. Um, I'm in the beginning of the book, but Somerset came up. I don't think Somerset oh, has ever okay. come up before in one of my books. <laughs> Somerset came up because it said something about, this is where the abolitionist movement started in the UK. I absolutely have no idea about that at all. I'm really sorry. Yeah, so, it's quite possible. So, uh, yeah. so, so, so yes, yeah, so it, it was cool just because I knew I was going to be here in the oh, next, okay. whatever, no, a week ago I was reading this book and uh -huh. Somerset came up, which oh. I thought uh, was pretty cool. But it is beautiful here. Yeah. Um, every time I um, leave London and spread out into uh, yeah. England um, and Wales, Greg, don't worry, and Southern <laughs> Wales, um, it's just so beautiful, so peaceful, so calm. Um, so thanks for giving me um, an excuse to be here. No, it's great, great. Uh, so we spent the last couple of days talking a lot about Bowen mm -hmm. therapy. Um, you know, I can we start with just giving an you know a brief intro to what it is. Um, you know, for okay. a person that doesn't know anything about it, sure. uh, we have this uh, this little book here, uh, which yeah, I think yeah. gives the good like synopsis of what Bowen is. Yeah. yeah. Um. So, so yeah, what is it? I know it. Um, I knew this before, so listening to you speak for the last forty-eight hours, um, <laughs> originated with from the man named Bowen from Australia, right? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 yes, the, the name originates from his name, which is Tom Bowen. Um, and he was from and Geelong, which is just outside Melbourne, about an hour from Melbourne in uh, Australia. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, his history was quite interesting. He, his family were actually from the Midlands, um, Wolverhampton area. And they, I think they emigrated to Australia when, when Tom Bowen was really quite young, like, I don't know, in his four or five or something like that, very, very young. Um, and and they were kind of manual laborers, really. I think his dad was, and certainly Tom Bowen was as well. He went, he worked in the cement works, and you know was was obviously very very interested in manual therapies, and and particularly sort of you know getting people out of pain, really. Um, so he was he was largely well actually pretty much completely self taught. But was it because um, of like his work environment? Was he seeing people around him? Yeah, I think he was see, seeing people who were injured and you know at work and things like that. And he just wanted to help them, I think. So, um, but we don't really know because he doesn't really he didn't really talk about it much. I mean, he mm. wasn't he wasn't a particularly good communicator. And I think this is one of the issues with Bowen that actually um, he was a very intuitive guy. Clearly. Um, who could kind of read the body in quite magical ways that I'm certainly not capable of doing. You know, he could look at someone and say, oh, when did you get your problem with your left shoulder and stuff? You know, that <laughs> kind of thing. Um, and I'm not very good at that. I'm better at hands-on. But but anyway, um, he, so he was largely self-taught. and But he did then sort of do, I wouldn't call him a you know formal apprentice, but he you know, palled up with various sort of what was called in Australia as then, I think, bone crunches. And a lot of those bone crunches were basically called osteopaths because osteopaths was an unreg unregulated profession then. So he teamed up with people who were manipulating people, you know, chiropractors and massage therapists and sports massage. Therapists. He ended up actually working with quite a well-known 
um, massage and sports therapist who worked with some of the Olympic teams there in Australia. And it learned a lot from him. What, you, what years are we speaking? God, I don't know. I think, I mean, he died in 1982, I think. So, um, and he, I, I guess this was probably in the 50s and 60s, maybe. Yep. Um, but I'm not entirely sure. But um, anyway, so he, 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 you know, he, he did a lot of kind of informal working with them and learning from them in his own way. And but there's a lot of kind of myth around what he studied. You know, some people think, oh, he studied with the Aborigines and he learned a lot from them, uh, or he studied a lot about Chinese medicine because there seems to be some elements of kind of Chinese medicine and shiatsu and things in within Bowen, but it's it's very difficult to know how much he knew about meridians and that that kind of thing. So uh, a lot of it we don't know. It's a lot of it speculation. Mm -hmm. We know a little bit about his history. and um, But it's pretty clear that, so he learned a lot from these people and he was very interested in things like osteopathy because, because you can see from a lot of the way that Bowen works is there's quite a lot of overlap with things like osteopathy and cranial osteopathy, for example. Uh, some of the understandings of the body and around what we now call fascia, I think probably comes from that. So I guess he probably had some kind of, um, you know, working relationship with some of those those people. But it also appears that at some point he had some sort of, I would say, you know, an inspiration. I mean, he, he, he called his work a gift from God, actually, because he was quite religious. His family were quite into the uh, Salvation Army. I mean, his sister, I think, was, and his wife was, as far as I understand. Um, I don't know how much he was, but certainly he was quite religious in his own way. So, um, and it's clear that he had some sort of, uh, I don't know whether you call it a eureka moment or whatever you do, but it's funny because a lot of the, a lot of these kind of people who kind of invent therapies or, 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 or start therapies, like even with osteopathy, um, seem to have these kind of moments when things come to them and they realize certain ways of working, which are kind of very, very different to mm. the way that other people have been working before. So so he, the way he started working then was very, very different. It was very interesting, which which is now how we work, where he would, um, you know, do a little bit and very, very gentle compared to what other people would have been doing in terms of like really getting in there and, and, and moving things around and, you know, bone crunching as it were, right? Yep. Um, so, so his approach was much more working with the connective tissue, which is actually very interesting because that's what the origin of osteopathy was like, really, when Dr. Still, who invented osteopathy, you know, 100 years before that or whatever, um, his approach was all around the connective tissue and all around the fascia and creating more movement and hydration and fluid flow in the fascia. And that's kind of what Bowen was doing as well. But where he got that information from, I don't know. So what, if I, we pause a sec on osteopathy. Sure. So has it changed since? So we look, now do we look at osteopathy different than we did when it was invented? Um, well, as with any profession, and it's the same with bone, and the same with osteopathy, there's different practitioners have different approaches to it. You know, um, uh, and cranial osteopathy is the same. So some people are more <clears throat> sort of mechanical-based, you could say. Some people I know are more energy based. They work more energetically with the body. So it varies a lot. I wouldn't, you know, it's, it, it, everything evolves. Bowen evolves over the years. Osteopathy evolves over the years. But certainly the origin of it and the way the doctor still worked with, with osteopathy was really focusing on, on the fascia 
and working with the connective tissue in the body. And he was, he was, yeah, I mean, you know, he talked about it in kind of religious terms. You know, he used to say, um, what's the phrase? He used to say, the soul of man with all the living waters dwells in the fascia of the body, something like that. You know, so he was very spiritual. And it, it's interesting when you look back at the history of a lot of these kind of inventors of these uh, therapies. I mean, I'm not talking about Bowen now because we don't really know. But a lot of the older ones, if you go back to like the, I don't know, 18th century even, a lot of them were interested in, in how does um, spirit express itself through the form of the body? I mean, even to the extent there was a, a famous anatomist um, who um, traveled from, uh, called Swedenborg, who traveled from his home country to Italy in order to study anatomy. This was in the 18th century. He, he went to Italy to study, fascia, to, to study anatomy in order to find out where exactly the soul dwells in the, in the body, which is really fascinating. So I think, I think um, you know, when we look back at the history of things like osteopathy, um, they talk a lot about it from almost um, a, a religious and a spiritual point of view. I mean, a lot of the language of, of osteopathy and particularly cranial osteopathy is around, they use phrases like um, the breath of life. You know, that phrase in the Old Testament where, where God breathes life into, the, into dust and, and the breath of life becomes form and the form of that is man. So, um, you know, they, they talked a lot about that. And so they were very interested in that. Now, Tom Bowen, I've no idea what, how he felt about that kind of thing. But certainly the way he, 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 he viewed it, his, his phrase was that he felt this was a gift from God. So, Are you religious at all? I, I'm not, I wouldn't call myself particularly religious. I would say I'm spiritual because actually the, the, my interest in this work um, actually derived from, I would say, my experience, or I would call it a spiritual experience really, but it was, it was a very physical experience of the effect of deep stillness through meditation, yoga really, but particularly meditation, on my physical and mental well-being. And in fact, that's why I got into this work, which is a bit of an accident, because I was looking for something which kind of um, was the nearest thing to, uh, to meditation that I could find in terms of body work. In terms of being treated, though, by someone? Yes, I used to go to therapists a lot, and, mm. and I started with uh, craniosacral work. And, and certainly my experience of craniosacral work at that time was like this ability to drop down, which I also like with Bowen as well, this ability to drop down into the body, into these areas of deep stillness. Because in my own system, I found that that was a really great way of being able to integrate what was going on. I mean, I was a real mess in my teens. You know, I was, I was, I was looking for all kinds of things because I was in such a mess. And so, so it was like, like most people. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Daddy. But maybe you were. You seem pretty together. But, but uh, <laughs> yes, I guess a lot of us in our teens were were seeking for something, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so what led you to meditation? Oh, that's another story. Okay. No, because well, because that because because <laughs> the meditation you're saying gave you that experience, which. Yes. Led you to feel something similar in other Yeah, that, well, that's, that's kind of what I was looking for was, was how, how can you translate um, this effect into body work? Because I could see the, the beneficial effect for myself, you see. 
uh, and it wasn't just it wasn't just the, the the kind of spiritual side of it which was you know connection with the divine and all all that which is very very powerful but it was more also equally a connection with the body and allowing my nervous system to kind of settle which which actually was very very healing so that that was what i was after and then uh, so that's why i found craniosacral work which which has a very powerful effect like that and then Bowen came along kind of accidentally, uh, really. But I found it had a very kind of almost similar effect about bringing people back and bringing you back into the body, into, into present time. But your question was about spirituality, right? And that was, what was if that? You're, yeah, if you're religious. No, only because, you know, like we spoke about uh, Tom Bowen, about uh, yeah. it being like a eureka moment. Yeah, yeah. Which... I think I, I think I can relate to, and I think if okay. people pause and stop for a second, they probably can also. Mm-hmm. Maybe we, d- I didn't have a eureka moment as grandiose as um, inventing a therapy that right, can help right. people. But bits of you know when you learn something about yourself, when it just clicks, yeah, yeah, yeah. like um, you know you could do yoga practice for yeah, yeah. Um, for months, and just a certain movement just yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah. But then you show up one day and you have this mini eureka moment yeah, yeah. where you figure out something about how your body moves, how it works, how it mm. responds to certain things. Mm. Um, so, I, yes, I mean a lot of a lot of people have had that. I mean, yeah. but while it's it's, it's, like it's, a lot of inventors, I mean, someone like Einstein talks about mm-hmm. it, doesn't he? Yeah, how he was solving you know, equations and stuff, and then getting these <laughs> yeah <laughs> insights and eureka moments and stuff like that. So and you were you were a music teacher too, no? Well, that's right. Yeah, I studied before music. the Bowen days. Yeah, you know, I studied music at university. So, um, uh, yes, I was. I was. Yeah, that's a whole other story. That I mean, <laughs> I, I find vibration. I find vibration very, very interesting. And I mean, some people talk about things like Bowen as um, almost like, <clears throat> or, or when you're with uh, doing craniosacral work, it's almost like you're listening to an orchestra. When you put your hands on someone's body, there's so much you can feel. And so part of the art of what we're doing, I think, is like, you know, really kind of sitting back and kind of listening to the whole thing rather than focusing too much on a on a part. But, yeah, the, the, I find the whole thing about vibration very interesting and, what, um, and particularly around what's happening nowadays. This might be a slightly off topic, but it's got a bit of a passion of mine, oh, no, really. But, yeah. So because I, I got involved with playing um, old instruments quite early on in my I'm a flautist. Um, and, and when I was at university, we had this um, museum of old instruments and these amazing old 18th century flutes and things, which were basically just a bit of wood uh, or sometimes ivory or whatever they were made of. Uh, there was even a glass flute there, actually, as well. Um, but the, 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 it was quite simple. It was a, a cylinder as a head joint and then a kind of tapered body and just one key at the end. Um, but anyway, and and I got really interested in in old ways of playing and old kind of scales, which we've lost now. So in the in the old days, um, you know, you didn't have the, the, the harmonies were quite simple. You know, you had plain chant, and then you had polyphony. But the, but the harmonies were quite simple, you could say, and they were based around certain certain keys. So those instruments um, were designed more to play in certain keys where they were completely in line with the harmonic series. So with the harmonic series, you have a, you, you know, you play a note, for example, on a flute or a violin or something like that. Um, and then if you overblow on a flute, so you blow a bit harder, you get, 
<laughs> well, they're not like that. <laughs> when I but, tried it, they made us all. They made us all in Israel um, play the flute in really? second grade for one year. God, I know. Do you have one with you? No. Okay. Car- carry on. Sorry. <laughs> so but anyway, yeah, when you play it too yeah, hard. Yeah. Well, no. It's it's interesting because it, it it's it's sort of like I think a lot of people don't know how how what we listen to these days is a a bit of a bastardization of what's real to be honest because when you when you when you when you hear something which is completely aligned with pure the pure harmonic series it sounds very very different and 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 in my opinion actually has a much deeper healing effect on people but anyway so so if you take a note and then you overblow like you just did with your flute (laughs) and you get an octave above and if you overblow that again you get a fifth and you overblow, you get a fourth, and then you get a major third, and you get a minor third, so the, the, the intervals diminish. So those vibrations are, are like twice as fast each time, so that they're completely in line with the harmonic series, right? The natural laws of vibration, you could say. Um, so if you do that on a violin or any stringed instrument, that's what will happen. But nowadays, you have this situation, because we've got the, we want to play in so many different keys, and um, it gets more complex, what happened maybe i don't know how many years ago 200 or 300 years ago um we started adapting keyboards so that they could play in any key but what that meant was that they shifted from a pure harmonic series i mean you have some old organs in germany still in churches which can basically they're ba- they're still based on what they call mean tone which is which is this pure harmonic series but they can only play in about two keys otherwise they sound absolutely horrible so uh, uh, but the effect is very interesting and you get that effect that still you, these days you get that effect with um what we call a cappella music which is like pure music that you that is unaccompanied like a church music yeah. or in some like string quartets where they naturally will will play it like that or in some string orchestras, but but mostly with pianos, keyboards these days, um, with um, other wind instruments like trumpets and flutes, they're all they're all adapted. But we've got so used to that now that actually we don't notice it anymore. And uh, it's very interesting when you go. I went to a, an Indian Indian classical concert uh, a couple of days ago, and again the way they are playing is absolutely mostly unless they're playing keyboards and stuff. They're mostly completely in line with the natural harmonic rules. And I firmly believe that has a very different effect on me. Because I remember coming out of that concert the other day and I felt absolutely wonderful as a result of of being bombarded with that intense uh, relationship to those harmonic series notes. So anyway, that's a kind yeah, of bite by really. There's also, um, <clears throat> there is a, a lot of people studying the connection between sound and healing. Yeah. Um, have you have you attended a class, seen it? Um, no, I'd love to. Yourself? I'd love yeah. to. And we, of course, you have things like sound, sound, arts, sound, sound bowls, sound well. bowls, yeah. and all. That. I mean, people love that kind of stuff. Yeah, I've been to a little bit, but no, I've never studied. I'd love to study it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's super yeah. cool stuff. Oh, <laughs> so we can, we can get back to the music thing, <laughs> to, to the music teacher. Um, but so both. Yeah. yeah. So um, I was asking you also about meditation. So you you yeah, yeah. You, you like. You're, in, you're 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 discovering this meditative state, um, yeah. But how long did it take you? Because also meditation is like it's a intense process. Yeah, well, it requires discipline. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I'd, 
<laughs> in my case, that wasn't quite true. I'll tell you a little bit of a story. So, so what happened in my in my early teens? Um, um, I had a couple of I, I would call them fairly major crises in my family, really, and um, that put me into um, I would say a pr pretty tra traumatized state. I, I mean, at that time, I had no idea what was going on, but I kind of went into what I now know is a kind of shutdown state. I, I, having studied my autonomic nervous system for many, many years, I kind of understand it a bit. And um, so that kind of shutdown state is part of our, what we call our old vagus, where you can kind of go, you know, you completely shut down. And I, I didn't really feel my body at all. I was, I functioned reasonably well, but I pretty much stopped speaking, stopped wanting to relate to people you know, felt very isolated. It was very, it was not a very nice time. And I knew that I had to find some way out of it. So, and I thought at that time, therapy would be a good thing to get into. And by chance, I read this book, which I found in a secondhand bookshop in Winchester when I was, oh God, I was about 17, 18, I think. It was called The Primal Scream. And it was the first book, it was by Arthur Yanov. And it was the first book really that came out that began to look at how trauma is stored in the body and, uh, and how we could work with it. And in those days, you know, people really didn't understand trauma very well. I mean, they understand it much better nowadays. But, but at that point, it was like, uh, and I read this book and, and it was like, it sounded absolutely fantastic. And the whole idea was that, you know, you come to a point in your body where you'd feel this kind of primal angst. <laughs> that existed in your body, you know, and you would scream it out and, and then you'd be fine. And I thought that sounded great. So, so I wrote to Arthur Yanov. He was in California at the time and uh, where he started the whole thing. Um, and he very kindly wrote, wrote back to me uh, unusually. And, um, and he said, well, look, you know, you can come out here, but it'll cost you quite a few thousand dollars, I guess, to do it. And I couldn't, I didn't, I was a student. So, but he said, oh, well, these, there are these guys in, in London um, doing it. And why do you go and see them? So I, I went and saw them and they were living in a squat in Brixton. And Brixton is quite a rough area. It used to be quite a rough area of London. It's quite nice now. But anyway, it is quite nice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I ended up living in, in this whole squatted street. It was, it was fantastic. Um, I took a year out of university to do it and, and went through a kind of therapeutic process with them, which was very, very interesting, and uh, kind of was the, my first step onto that whole therapy. So, what is it, what does their version of therapy entail? Well, it basically involved involved a lot of um, uh, screaming and shouting hmm. and hitting pillows and 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 blaming your mother for everything. Right. So it's like it's the old days of therapy, and they were just like, ah, I know this. Well, so nowadays <laughs> they they always blame the parents, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, moved on a bit, but yes, we always blame our parents, do we? Um, so, but anyway, the, the, the story goes that, that, uh, you know, it was very interesting, but, I, but it, it, it kind of just, what it did, it would just stirred stuff up for me. And that's, it didn't really resolve anything. I just got kind of like, all I could feel was my own pain. And when I looked around, that's all I could see is pain in other people. You know what I mean? It was not, not very helpful. It was kind of overwhelming. It certainly got me in touch with my body, but anyway, so, and then after that, I, sort of by chance, a lot of these things happen by so-called chance, don't they, in our lives. But by chance, I got, um, a, a, my girlfriend at the time was very interested in Gurdjieff. I don't know if you know who Gurdjieff was, but he was a no. very eccentric 
very interesting uh, spiritual teacher who incorporated a lot of Sufi stuff into his work and everything like that. Anyway, so I got interested in the hymn, and from that I then got interested in, again, quite by chance, a form of kind of movement meditation, uh, which was called Subud, which you probably also haven't heard of. It was not that well known. But anyway, so I went along to one of these groups um, in the university town that I was at, not knowing really anything about it, um, in a fairly agitated state. And, um, and the way they do this um, sort of walking uh, movement meditation was that they would do some sort of little ceremony um, uh, as a, like a prayer. And this guy stood up in front of me and just read this thing off a sheet. And uh, I thought it was very sweet. But anyway, what happened then was very interesting in the sense that my mind completely stopped absolutely dead and it had never ever stopped in my life it was so it was like someone had a switch and they went ding like this and my mind went completely blank i mean in a good way i was still lucid but my, there was no thoughts at all and then i began to move and quite spontaneously i would i did these sort of like uh circling movements a bit like a dervish you know the whirling dervishes would do i didn't know anything about dervishes at that time but i found that very interesting <laughs> And during this whole process, there was absolutely no thought at all. And I remember after it, getting on my bike and riding back to my digs, and there was still no thought. And I just thought, well, that's very, very interesting. And then after that, someone, it's a bit of a long story, but I'll get there in a minute. After that, one of my best friends at, at university had just been out to India to meet this quite well-known guru figure out there. And um, he said, look, it's all very well for this kind of movement meditation. Why don't you sit down and try this? And um, he gave me this mantra. I, I, was, I wasn't very interested in it uh, particularly. But anyway, I said, oh, well, I'll give it a whirl. I sat down. And I, as soon as I began repeating this particular mantra, I left my body. So and I was looking down at my body from the, somewhere up in the ceiling. And again, this sense of completely no thoughts at all. Nothing. And you were sober. And I was completely sober. <laughs> but anyway, so, what, what, so, so what you say that it, meditation has to be difficult, but it wasn't. Mm. I mean, I hate to say it. It wasn't actually very difficult for me. But that was not, I would not put any credit down to me for that. It was just happened that way. Do you remember the mantra? I do. Is it just one word? No, it was, oh. it's a, quite a, it was quite a well-known Indian mantra, actually. Mm which is used a lot, um, it's Om Namah Shivaya, which means um, Om, which is the you know, uh, primal sound, Namah Shivaya, which means I, I bow or I worship my own inner self. Yes. And, so, and in the meditation, you repeat that over and over again to yourself? Um, yeah, that's part of the practice. Some people practice it like mm. that. Um, but it was, it was much more of an energetic response. And then you know, um, certain things then began to happen. But the, but the main thing was this sense of, of incredible stillness, which I'd never, ever felt before, and this kind of like deep, 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 deep levels of quiet in my system. And that's kind of what I was looking for, really, because up to then it just felt my whole system was kind of agitated and I was trying to find a kind of way home and a way back into my body. So that was the thing. And then, and then finding craniosacral work really was something which I felt, oh, okay, so this is a way in for other people who, 
you know, maybe they don't want to go through the meditation route. As you said, it can be quite difficult for people. That this is a way in for people to experience these kind of states of stillness without having, without all the hard work, right? So what, is, it, is it like <laughs> assisted meditation? Well, it is in a way. I often, I often describe it. I mean, with the craniosacral work, when you, you know, you're just holding someone's head or their feet or their sacrum, whatever. And you're just sinking into the stillness. And it's like, it often feels like a journey together with somebody into stillness. I mean, this is my experience. It's not everyone's own experience of it or how they would like to practice. It's just my preference. But it, people love it. And, um, you know, so it's like you, you're just holding their head and you, you're just encouraging them to drop down into stillness and drop down and see. How far can you go into this? How far can you go? So it's like a journey, and you can really feel that. It's like you can feel them dropping down, their system dropping down. And it's very, very beautiful, I think. Um, and the same thing happens with Bowen, but with Bowen, we've got less contact. So uh, it, to, be on, it, to be honest, I feel it in myself, but I feel it less when I'm working on people. But the result is very similar. So can we describe, like, uh, in brief, a a an, a you know regular Bowen session? Someone I walk yeah. into you. Um, I I can use myself as an example. I walk yeah. in. I have a um, some elbow pain, some sure. golfer's elbow ish, um, and I have some calf pain. Right. Where yes. we, like, and I, I find a Bowen therapist. And <laughs> yes, you would someone, yes, yes, so what does the process look like? <laughs> yes, I mean, the thing is, you'd normally go to a Bowen therapist for that kind of thing. You wouldn't normally go to a Bowen therapist for, you wouldn't say, well, can I have a bit of stillness in my life? You know, but actually, that's the effect. Uh, so, yes, normally, uh, I mean, I'm a bit of eccentric in the way I approach this stuff. Uh, but so normally you, you go to a Bowen therapist because you want something uh, sorted out on a musculoskeletal level. So now you've got a frozen shoulder or you've got a painful elbow or whatever it is like you. Yeah. Or something. Um, so the process would be that, um, you know, I would or the Bowen therapist would talk to the person about their expectations, what they want, um, you know, like what we've been doing over these two days, do a little assessment about what might be going on. Because if someone comes in with a shoulder problem, um, you know, it could be related to, you know, an old accident or an old operation maybe lower in their back, or it could be related to their neck. There's all kinds of stuff that it might be might be going on. So we're we're trying to find out what is the root cause of whatever they've got going on. And then explain to them what we think is going on. We're not diagnosing, but what we think is going on. And then uh we will say what we're gonna do. So um and then lie them down and, and do the treatment. And so the treatment involves um, quite often um, a whole body treatment, not always, sometimes it's more specific around certain areas, but often it's a whole body thing. Where so regardless of where I'm feeling that discomfort or pain, then it's a full body treatment? Not not always. It depends kind of like on a first treatment, what we, we tend to do is um, we tend to like to work the whole body first because there can be stuff going on that people don't tell you. Very often, very often what happens is like they come back the next week and they say, oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, oh, I had this pain in my neck and after what you did, oh, it went after that and I hadn't even told you about it, you know, and that might be related to something else that they've got going on. So, um, so almost anyway, like a body scan for the first uh, session. Yeah, it kind of like, it gets them used to the work as well because it's a bit strange having a bone session for the first time when you're, 
just being have a little bit done here and then you wait and then you do a little bit more people are not quite used to that right so and the body's not used to it so so it gets it gets the body kind of used to it gets it accepting the work and but it also it also is is really important to address the whole the whole system so generally speaking not always but generally speaking on the first treatment we'll do more of a whole body session and then on subsequent treatments we might then hone in more on certain areas depending but we're not too procedural you know we really have to look at the bigger picture of why someone has something going on so like with you know with back pain which is very very common that could be a postural issue you know it could be an issue with the pelvic alignment but it could be something like head forward posture which is like endemic in well not probably not in israel <laughs> no, 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 it Certainly. is. Yeah, I, think, I think it Certainly. is. It's getting in the different. UK. It's getting there. It's, it's getting like there. everyone's at their computer, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, I also have a theory about that, that uh, a lot of these days, a lot of um, babies, you know, they, they spend a little too much time on their backs and um, less time on their tummies. So, you know, when, when babies are on their tummies, uh, when they're quite young, they tend to push back and open up the chest and push their scapula back. And it's quite interesting when you look at so many, what I would call young people, including you, Danny, I refer to you as young compared to me, but, um, you know, people in their, um, you know, teens and thirties even, who went through this whole thing about um, the fact that babies shouldn't sleep on their fronts and because of uh, SID, you know, sudden infant death syndrome, um, was that was the feeling and and partly because of that but partly because babies spend so much time in car seats and things like that they tend they spend too much time on their backs and so they don't do this whole thing about pushing up and that that doesn't uh, then it affects their development you know it affects their breathing but particularly the shoulders and the scapula so you, you'd often see that with with younger people they have this what we call winged scapula you know tight here which all can always also contributes to this kind of forward posture but those kind of forward postures then put a lot of strain on the lower back and it affects the breathing and you know all kinds of stuff has a lot of ramifications so that's kind of why we want to work more generally first of all yeah i like the fact that it does approach every client or patient as looking at the bigger picture yeah yeah so you're not you're not just there to um solve a symptom that you're seeing no no i think we need to get away from the the symptom-led approach of treating people and you know obviously west a lot of western medicine is focused on that isn't it if you if you go to a consultant often they'll you know do an x-ray or a scan and they'll say oh you've got this disc here which is bulging us pressing on the nerve and so we'll just shave the disc a bit and you'll be fine and often you know sometimes that might work but often it doesn't and they're not really looking at the picture or why you know what's happening with your pelvis that's creating that strain on that area of the back or the tension in that musculature that's creating that situation where a disc might do that and that often happens because of postural irregularities or you know uh, irregularities and imbalances in the pelvis which then put a strain on muscles like the psoas or whatever it is and then creates a situation where that's more likely to happen so we tend to look broader yeah does it frustrate yeah. the uh, patient sometimes that you know just no. focus on solving the symptom and you want to dig deeper oh well no not at all no because a lot of people that we see i suppose they will have gone from person to person and searching um, you for know a i suppose 
because Bowen is not that well known, mm-hmm. um, they've probably tried other things. You know, they've been to their chiropractor and osteopath and their consultant. Um, not always. It's not always like that because actually now yeah. I'm quite well known and people come to me because they know that well, it works. You know, but in some cases you might get that. So so they come in and 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 you know you do your little assessment, which to be honest is really not rocket science. I mean, you've seen it; it's pretty straightforward. And um, they will often say, "Oh my God, you know, nobody's actually done that with me before." I mean, I know that osteopaths will do that kind of thing, but. But uh, typically, consultants perhaps won't, or their doctors won't do much of a physical examination. Yeah. And when you point out to them, well, I'm not really surprised you've got that problem with there because, you know, your your pelvis is doing this. It's forward on the right, and you know, okay, what are you doing in your work that's creating this? And they, you, know, you ask all those kind of questions, and you try and get to the root of it. So, so they uh, like it. They I, like I, it. I modelled. For I a, did uh, for a walking yeah. assessment. Ah, you did. So looking at my hips, right? Yes. You had me put my hands on my um, yes, yes, on your iliac crest. On my iliac crest. Yes. Um, and then you said that's the best positioning for you to kind of analyze and assess the movement of the hips. Yeah. Well, well, if you do that, you can kind of see uh, as people walk, you can see the kind of up and down movement of mm-hmm. the of the hips uh, when they walk. So it's a bit easier. I mean, you can see it without, but it's a little bit easier when you yeah. Do, yeah. And hmm. and you said that I had some deficiency on the right. Well, side. I would never call it deficiency, Danny. <laughs> Small problem. I mean, <laughs> we're very careful with language. <laughs> no, but actually, it's very important. You know that that that, that, that language is so important when we're when we're when we're giving feedback to people. I mean, I know that. Um, you know, uh, uh, in some some surgeons when they're doing operations and stuff are very very cautious, particularly when people are under anaesthetic, because things that they say go in very very deep to their unconscious um, and can affect um, people. You know, quite quite strongly. So we're very careful about what we say. So um, you know, what <laughs> if if I, I would never call call it what did what word you use now so. <laughs> Some deficiency, yeah. right? Yes, and I would never say that. I would say uh, <laughs> that. Yeah, but you can be honest <laughs> with me, John. <laughs> yes, but if you were my client, I'd be careful what I'd say to you. There was a wonderful story. When I was in teaching in Germany recently, um, there was uh, an, an anesthetist on the course there, and uh, she was saying what happened to, it was quite a funny story, what, what happened to someone in her hospital when she was... Um, teaching in, I think she was working in Australia. But anyway, um, this woman came out of surgery. I think it was for a hysterectomy or something. And the, you know, the whole thing had gone well, the operation had gone well. She was on good uh, course for recovery. And uh, as she left the hospital, there was a, uh, a, an Australian with quite a broad accent. <clears throat> and, um, and he was discharging her. And as he was discharging her, he said, she has said to her, and I'll excuse my, excuse my Australian accent. He said, okay, Mrs. Smith, you can go home to die. So she took that, uh, internally, she took that as I'm going home to die. Well, he meant going home today, right? So that was a pretty good um, Australian accent. <laughs> oh, thank you. Craig. <laughs> I'm going home to die, <laughs> mate. <laughs> Anyway, so that so but no, but this is a true story, and and that's what her subconscious heard, and I mean she went home and she began to deteriorate quite quickly apparently, 
Anyway, they got her back in. They couldn't quite work out what had happened. Yeah. They got a hypnotherapist in to try and kind of find it out. And then they tracked it back to this, that that's been said. But anyway, it's a funny story. But, but you know, we have to be careful. So, so we, we, we tend not to use negative terms, right? Yeah. So when we're describing something, you know, I know some massage therapy. You go to a massage therapist and they'll say, oh, my God, I've never seen such a tight back in all my life. You know, it doesn't make you feel very good, right, does it? So, so the way I would couch that, I would say, well, there's a little bit to work on there, Danny, in the way you're walking. And I, I would say there's a little bit of restriction around your right sacroiliac joint, which is what was happening actually with you. So is it uh, restriction? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that, that could come from too much sitting or you know, lifting something. I don't know what you've been doing recently or working mm-hmm. out. Or, or you go jogging, right? Okay. Have you had Run, running? Running. Okay. Don't, don't insult me. <laughs> <laughs> running. <laughs> um, and you go, you, yeah. you run along the, the beach in Tel Aviv, I right? Do. Yeah. Okay, cool. And have you ever fallen over or? No. No. But again, but I, but I have, I've had some. So have you noticed something with your gait, a bit different left and right? No. Oh, okay. Nothing new. Like, okay. I think what so you've had is, a um, long, right. okay. little problem that I have. <laughs> Um, I think it's I been, never I think it's been for a while, but I don't think it's, no. you know... Um, so you would have compensated and adapted for it. Yeah. I think I've adapted to whatever it is because I'm generally, I feel okay. Yeah. Um, nothing out of the ordinary. But very e- is it easy to spot, I'm assuming? Well, um, yeah. So, so, so basically what we were looking at there when we're, when we're getting people to do that, and um, basically what happens when you walk... Um, you know, you're, it, all, all the joints in your body are, are, are moving, and th- that includes the sacroiliac joint, which is where the bottom of the, you know, the sacrum, the bottom of your spine, right, sits um, like a wedge shape within your pelvis, the rest of your pelvis, the left and the right iliac, iliac bones, yeah, which is your pelvis. Now, in if you look at a four-legged animal, um, they've got a similar construction to, the, to us, and they've got a spine, and they've got the sacrum, and they've got their legs, back legs. Um, so for a dog or something like that, they, 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 their sacroiliac joint moves a lot and they wag their tail and it's all, you know, hunky-dory. Um, but also, um, there's not too much pressure on their sacroiliac joint because most of their weight is through their front legs. But when we go to a standing up position, it's like uh, all our weight of our upper body is held within our sacroiliac joints. And it's kind of suspended with these really, really strong kind of ligaments, yeah? But anyway, it's designed to move. So if it doesn't move, then it's like the whole pelvis has to move to compensate for it. So that's what we're looking for. So when you were walking, um, I think your left side was was fairly level, but on your right, it was kind of lifting up a little bit and swinging forward. And the other thing that you can see with this is like when the heel goes down, the heel strike, you see this kind of jarring through that side. So. It, was, it wasn't that obvious. It wasn't that bad at all. Danny said, don't worry about it. But it was a little, I could see it a little bit. So it was a bit of a lift through your right ilium as you walk, a bit of a coming forward. And as you put your heel strike down, it went doing a little bit like that. And then, so if I came to you as a patient, yeah. um, I hope we can talk about these things. Um, if I came yeah. to you as a patient, then sure. what, what would the process be like? What type of treatments would we do um, in order to correct this? Okay, so I, I, are we trying to correct it? Or are we trying to... 
um because you mentioned a lot yeah. about you know restoring um um, movement and, movement yeah, and ability, hydration, hydration mobility yeah, yeah. to the entire body and hoping yeah. that it fixes itself or are we honing on well, a specific not, area I'm hoping it fixes itself it will fix itself <laughs> no i mean we're, we're giving the opportunities to to fix itself but it also depends what you're doing you know so if someone's sitting a lot and that's not going to help so part of what what bowen used to encourage people to do was to walking I and mean, things like walking are very very important for movement but um so what we would do we'd uh, we'd um, do these kind of assessments with you, and then we'll they will do some work around the sacrum, and that and that that specific work that we were doing yesterday and today um, is designed to when when we when we move over ligaments and and fascia and tendons like that, it's designed to bring more hydration into the area. So so basically, it will release begin to release the sacroiliac joint, create more space in it. So that's what you're saying about we're hoping that the body will heal but actually it's giving the body the opportunity to heal because it's creating more hydration in it it's creating more space in the joint it's restoring the integrity of the tissues if you like yeah so that's the plan and then but so let's say i understand that you're saying that i could be maybe damaging myself or maybe disrupting the healing process by maybe sitting for too long by maybe restricting restricting the ability to heal myself yeah Um, lack of movement creates creates a lot of kind of um confusion i was going to say a lot of kind of stagnation in the tissues i mean you know the tissue our tissues are like full of fluids and these fluids are quite sticky. They are um, in size, they call them glycoaminoglycans. They're, they're kind of like sugars, you know, proteins and sugars. And um, so, so they, they can become sticky. And that you need that kind of fluidity in the various layers of all the muscles and the fascia, et cetera, to be able to move quite freely in the body. So that's kind of what we're restoring. It's a bit like if you had, um, you know, uh, when you were a student, you had a coffee cup and probably used to drink lots of sweet coffee and stuff right so and you left a coffee cup on the on the side and the heat in tel aviv and and when you come back and then the coffee cup is kind of stuck to the source you know Mm. because it's dried out it's become very sticky so so yeah so would it be something that i keep returning to to keep um you know fixing the um, not fixing but yeah. allowing my body to keep healing itself in the best way possible and is, is it well, he, is it healing like a one and done thing or is it a continuous <laughs> thing until um you know until i perish well that's like <laughs> it's a difficult question to answer it depends kind of what you do but in my experience with bowen um people usually come in with an issue and um i would say mostly um within three or four sessions um, things have changed quite substantially. Um, and unless they're doing something repeatedly that's going to re-injure themselves, things, you know, change. They do change and they stay that way unless people do something stupid. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think Bowen has a very, very good track record at kind of long-term effects, to be honest. So I, I've i experienced craniosacral yeah. therapy on myself, yeah. um, which at the time was very tough to very tough to understand what was going uh-huh. on and very tough to connect with because it wasn't okay. something I seeked. It was something recommended to me almost as a yeah. last resort. I had this knee injury that just it 
wasn't going away. Right. Um, you know, I, ke- I was actually coming back from an ACL uh, surgery. Yeah. Um, and the rehab was not, the process was not linear at oh, all. Okay. Um, and I got to a point, like a ditch, where I just couldn't get out of. I had this, yeah, yeah. Na- had this pain on the surface of my knee okay. that would not go away. Yeah. Um, so as a last resort type thing, I was sent to was known as maybe um the the crazy um athletic <laughs> trainer at the university that I, w- I was okay. playing at playing yeah. uh, football soccer at in uh, in America yeah um and people only send athletes to this crazy guy right. <laughs> um when it's a last resort okay uh, funny enough and usually he's able to help and he was a craniosacral guy it's craniosacral guy's been okay. studying it for many many years still uh, is still claims yeah. to amazing guy still claims yeah. to know nothing um but it's interesting claims to know nothing claims to know nothing about he says the more oh, he learns the more he realizes that he's, he's not even close to understanding <laughs> the body of the energy systems and oh, all those different things um <laughs> Now it's way easier for me. It's still difficult, but, but way did, easier. But did it change when you went? It did. Oh, and you it, don't know, but you don't know why. I don't know why. But when he was working on it, did you feel stuff moving or changing? Or he was guiding uh, me through uh, the process and guiding me through okay. what he was feeling. So I really don't know to tell you then if okay. I was actually feeling it or okay. I was trying to synchronize myself with what he was saying. Uh, um, okay. So it was difficult to. Now I can maybe, mm. now I would be way more open-minded mm-hmm. um and more receptive and maybe find it more interesting and i can see now how it maybe can help me right then i don't think i was but it did help me yeah um i was like you know uh, i i was i went and i went mm. through the sessions mm. but i did not really understand why i was doing it okay um so it was, it was a difficult one to see but it helped um yeah. and i had a very good friend of mine that could not get over a uh, headache from a concussion yeah um, and it was chronic. Yeah. And also a few craniosacral uh, therapy sessions, yeah. which, again, um, you know, he told me that it made him, he was crying right. during the sessions. Yeah. I don't know if that's something normal, if you've exper- seen that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, with the craniosacral work, um, it, it's different to Bowen because with, with the craniosacral work, you have a lot of contact, um, you know, hands-on contact. You might You might hold someone's head or their back for like, you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Um, and after, I mean, I've been doing it again for like a long time, 30 years. And you, you, you pick up these skills and I don't, it's very difficult to explain um, really how you do it. So for example, I mean, I teach intro courses on the cycle, but I remember the other day um, doing a class and just putting my hands on, on somebody's head like this and pretty much immediately feeding this um, line of compression. And it was a very, very specific line. I can't remember the direction, but it was like feeling in my hand like across here or across my palm in a, like a line. I thought, well, that's very unusual. You don't normally get that kind of thing. It was like it was like the tissues kind of going like this. This is kind of what you feel like. You know, if you have a blow, the tissues, the tissues kind of go like this to hold that kind of pattern. Anyway, it's a very specific angle it was. And but this I, with you having your hands behind, yeah, just the just head. under the head. I feel this kind of thing a lot. So this is this wasn't that mm. unusual, um, but in this case, it was a bit odd. And I thought, and I said to her, "Gosh, it fe- it feels to me like you've fallen backwards onto something quite hard, uh, almost like the edge of a step or something like that that, that would have caused that kind of thing." And and again, she uh, she actually had an emotional reaction at that point. 
um, and she said, um, well, gosh, uh, about uh, three weeks ago, I think it was, uh, I fell backwards and I hit my head on the edge of a radiator. So it was this very, very hard edge. And I could feel that. But anyway, working with it is very interesting. And, and you know, like the way you've explained it, it's it's kind of difficult to get your head around it on a kind of analytical point of view. From from the point of view of craniosacral work, when you, when you put your hands on someone, and I think this is probably true of any kind of therapy, to be honest, but, he, but with craniosacral, there's a bit more intention behind it and focus on it. But when you when you start putting your hands on someone, some some something happens, and we say this a lot in craniosacral, something happens. We don't necessarily know what it is, but the body responds, and um, the body responds. And that's the key thing through right? the listening. The, the body responds. Yes, through the listening. There's something in the relationship between a therapist uh, listening to the body. I mean, we talked about this when we're working with babies, for example. This act of, of of active listening creates a situation where the body has permission to tell its story. You could say that mm. sounds kind of esoteric, but actually it's very practical. And on a practical level, when you got your hands on someone and you're just listening, and the listening is very interesting. We had this analogy of the orchestra earlier, like you're just sitting back and just seeing what comes to your hand, and then the body responds. And it actually, in craniosacral work, it responds in very very specific ways. So you'll get a reaction in the tissues, and very often that will have a certain pattern to it. It'll like eddying under your hand, and then it'll be often then begin to soften. And there are kind of key, very subtle things that we do in craniosacral work to encourage that. But even if you just listen, it'll happen. Uh, and and so you get a softening of the tissue and an expansion and a letting go. So there's something that happens in that process through listening, which involves some sort of resolution. But that is very difficult to explain. But is I think it, a lot of therapies that we do, you know, we tend to focus on the, on, the, um, on the technique, if you like. But actually beneath that, there's something happening in the therapeutic relationship which is really powerful. And I know a lot of the whole placebo effect has been studied, hasn't it, a lot, which is just that fact of someone paying attention to you or telling you things can have a very powerful effect in your body. So learning craniosacral therapy is yeah. a lot of it come with experience because i can imagine it being yeah. very difficult to connect understand feel early on or am yeah. i completely wrong no i think i mean i run i run two-day courses uh, like intro courses mostly for th for other therapists so they're so they're a little bit used to putting their hands on people but having said that i've had people who've never had any experience at all mm. and and it's quite amazing i think it's a, a lot of what we do is actually you're just paying attention to something that people can actually feel but they just never really paid attention to it. It's like if you were learning plumbing or something like that, and you, you know, I don't know, you paid attention to, you put your hand on a wall, and you could probably feel if there was a pipe there with mm. running water. You've just never done it before, right? So it's like that. You're putting your hands on, on, on someone's head, and you think, oh, that's interesting. I never felt that. Well, they've never done it, right? And then you begin to put it in a, in a kind of context. Well, oh, that means that when you're, feeling, you're feeling that kind of eddying pattern, Ah, oh, that means that, and a way of working with it is that. So, I find actually these these little intro courses on craniosacral—they're absolutely mind blowing. The things that people can feel. So, I think it's just being open to it and just actually listening, really. Yeah. You it's mentioned great. you mentioned babies. Babies. I have yes. To, I have to ask My you passion. how that. Yeah, babies. it's your passion. Why? Yes. Why? Why is uh, <laughs> working with babies, mothers, your passion? 
Uh, well, um, take us. You could take a sip first. Sorry, <laughs> that's right. That's, my question wasn't long enough. Mm. Mm. Well, I know this is going to require a bit of a long answer, so <laughs> I need a bit of fluid. Um, well, again, it came from my own experience, really. Um, that, from a kind of therapeutic point of view, um, I used to actually, to be honest, when I first studied craniosacral therapy there was beginning to be quite a lot of emphasis in the work around how uh, birth particularly um, affected us long-term and created these physical, emotional, psychological patterns in our lives. And I actually thought at that time that it was well overstated. I really didn't take it seriously at all. But then with my experience in therapy, I began to realize, oh my God, yes, I have these patterns and you could even say um, belief systems that we bring into this world that were very, very strong, that clearly had their origins in not only a birth experience, but actually a prenatal experience. We say, so, we say clearly, though. Yes, clearly, because your body remembers it. And when you start feeding into it, you can feel those patterns quite clearly. So, for example, you can do work around your umbilical area. And a lot of have issues around that area. And for me, that was very, very, very strong. So, um, you know, therapeutically working around that area brought up all kinds of stuff for me. Um, but I can, I, can, yeah. I, can, I can barely touch my uh, well, yeah, it's, belly button. Is that, is, is that a, um, a, a side effect of... Uh, I'm the oh. same. I find it... I, I hate being touched there or anything like that. Yeah, probably. I mean, I wouldn't like to analyze your... <laughs> prenatal experience daddy <laughs> but i <I've> imagined <laughs> i mean a lot of us didn't have it that easy so. yeah <laughs> uh, uh yeah we don't want to go too deep right now but off anyway there, off there. <laughs> um yeah so so i began to actually realize that it was from my own experience and how how that was held in the body and and, and things like that but also how how it creates belief systems with us and I got I got very interested in how that gets linked in with how our nervous system operates and and that's become much more you know um trending you could say these days with the whole thing about the vagus and our autonomic nervous system um which is amazing work from the work of Stephen Porges I'm not sure if you're familiar with that but it's really amazing it's, it's a kind of an understanding of how our nervous systems has developed over, you know, hundreds of thousands of years, really, from very, very primitive creatures who kind of lived at the bottom of the ocean and didn't do much and didn't go out much, um, which were basically a kind of a creature with a digestive tract and able to reproduce, um, in which the very primitive uh, nervous system began to develop. And we would call that now our old vagus, which is still within us and controls our gut function and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then through the evolution, our sympathetic or our fight or flight response began to develop. And, and that's a separate kind of part of our autonomic nervous system, which is to do with mobilization and, you know, fighting for things and running away and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then more recently, um, I mean, recently I'm talking about, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, um, the new vagus, so the new nerve pathways to do with social interaction began to emerge. And that's, again, it's all to do with survival, really. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of creatures, I think about two-thirds of creatures on this planet, can survive on their own. 
but us mammals can't. We need to work together and coordinate together. So, so this newer part of our nervous system, which we call the new vagus, began to emerge in order for us to survive in groups. So it's a lot to do with how social interaction and the use of our voice and our heart and our breath and all this kind of stuff. Um, so anyway, I got very interested in that from hearing Stephen Porges talked about, about this about 20 years ago. And I began to realize how um, those imprints on our nervous system um, get imprinted very, very early, even in the womb, even as our nervous system is beginning to develop. And they can get associated with certain belief systems. So, for example, when a baby experiences something quite traumatic, which it might do at birth or it might even before birth or in the first year, the baby will try and understand what's happening. And along with that, there will be a response in the nervous system. So their nervous system might go into a sympathetic activation. And then typically in babies, that's the Moro reflex. They go, you know, you see that babies, they like this and they hold their breath. And that's, that's, a, that's the Moro reflex. That's a sympathetic activation of their nervous system. They might do that a lot. But also, some babies will go into a more of a collapse if they have something traumatic happens. They, they go into a kind of shutdown. They become quite quiet and they lose a bit of muscle tone and they probably don't feed that well. It's not that great, really, for, for babies. But anyway. Is that the most but, sensitive periods, the b before birth and that first year? Yes, but it can happen with adults. You know, you get this with people in war zones and stuff like that as well, where they go into a complete collapse. That's a kind of part of the old Vegas, really. But anyway... So we have these kind of reactions, and for most people, they can move in and out of them, and uh, that parts of their nervous system. But what I'm saying is that often uh, a belief around your relationship to others and the world will arise around that time. So at birth, for example, <clears throat> you know, when you're first greeted, your ex your first experience, like we were feeling, and like I did on you, and I from that suction cap on your arm um fascinating <laughs> which is quite painful right yeah i mean you didn't flinch that much but i think it was quite yeah, painful, yeah, yeah right? it was it was <laughs> so, so um and it, you can imagine a baby's first experience of the world has this thing put on their head and it's bloody painful they think what the excuse me what is this right is you know uh, and and that gets associated because they try and work out what is going on do i need to pay attention to this and often babies will um, sort of reflect that back on themselves as though there must be something wrong with them. Because when they're born, there's a lot of celebration. Everybody's very happy, you know. Um, but their experience was, oh my God, this is awful. You know, it might there might be some good bits about it, but for many babies, this was pretty, uh, you know, a difficult experience. But everyone is happy. So there's a kind of disconnect. And we were talking about um, circumcision, circumcision <laughs> yes, <laughs> which is even more extreme. Yeah, um, where you might have, um, which is very common in Israel, but very common in America, not so common yeah. here now. But different. Well, okay, it's common in America, but in a different in a different format context. completely. Yeah. Yes. So in the context in somewhere like uh, like Israel, where it's um, a celebration, isn't it? It happened a few days after you're born, Eight right? Days, yeah. Eight days. Yeah. Um, and everyone's very, very happy, right? Is that right? Yeah, the yeah, family yeah. come together and have yeah. a big party, and there you are, and you're experienced. <laughs> I'm not talking about you, Danny, because I don't know what happened to you. <laughs> you're, you're describing it pretty well. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, yeah, we laugh about it, but it's not very nice. Anyway. That's what makes um, <laughs> all Jews alike to some degree is this experience of well, three days. Well, that's interesting. You know, we're similar we're, nervous systems. Well, yeah, that's a very good good point. But just 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 to conclude this a little bit, so so you, you know, I, I'm I'm talking from your experience, and I don't know what your experience was, and maybe you don't want to remember it. But anyway, but. <laughs> But a typical experience would be that, uh, you know, uh, pain, um, and that would happen suddenly. And when things happen suddenly, the nervous system will respond to that really quickly. And the, the way that our, our bodies are, are designed, our nervous system is designed to it, is to respond fast, right? This is dangerous. I need to respond now. Something needs to change now. So our, our nervous system is going to this, like this. And then along with that, you'll have this thing, why? There must be something wrong with me, right? Because everyone else is happy, so I'm wrong. So you, you can often get this kind of, this association between a nervous system response later in life and, um, and also then a belief about your relationship to the world or who you are. So I'm not saying this is, a, is true of you, but, but certainly um, that, that, can, that can happen like that. So I find that very interesting. And, 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 I, and I noticed that from my own experience that I would go into a free state and often along with that, there would be an association uh, with it, you know, like a sense of, and a lot of people have this actually, just a, a, a general sense of badness for some, some reason. And often that will, that will happen from very, very early experience like this. So that's why I'm interested in it because it's all pervasive. And you were saying, yes, what happens when something like this is experienced by a whole community? And that's very interesting. So, I mean, you get different events happening. So if you were in Brazil, if you were Brazilian, you almost certainly would have been born through cesarean because something like 90% of all babies in Brazil are born through cesarean section. If you were born in Bulgaria, you almost would have certainly would have been separated out from your mother for about three days and left in a kind of dormitory with other babies and been visited by maybe your parents for feeding. Now, we used to do that kind of thing here. So for myself, um, you know, if you're born, say, up to the mid-60s or something here in the UK, you would have been taken away from your mother and you would have been put into one of these places. And... Um, you know, so that, so what we're saying is a whole generation of people will have experienced almost the same thing. So with those kind of issues, as many, you know, depends how a baby might interpret that, but certainly things like separation at birth definitely have been studied a lot and tends to create anxieties around closeness and relationship and all that kind of thing, and perhaps a sense of worthlessness. So, um, but I'm not, you know, I don't want to categorize because everyone will feel that slightly differently, but those are kind of the tendencies that you might see. So, um, so yeah, we have to ask the question, if we're talking about Israel, um, what is the result of that? And, you know, what is the effect on things like uh, sexuality or one's relationship to women or, you know, and effects on relationship in general? I don't know. I mean, you would know more about what you see um, but um, certainly there will be effects, yeah. yeah. So, and your work with mothers and babies, um, and I think an important, very interesting thing you said yeah. um, is that you believe that it need, you need, if you're working on the mother, you need yeah. to work on the baby and vice versa? 
Yeah, because because they're you know particularly at a young age, you know, up to about you know two or three certainly, or even beyond that. Um, but certainly in the first year, they're, they're very much one unit. I mean, we're, we're basically born, you know, at least nine months too early. I mean, thank God, because you wouldn't want to stay in your mum's womb. Well, well she wouldn't want to. She yeah. wouldn't want you in there. Otherwise, yeah. you, you'd be too big to get out. And it's partly because our heads have grown, you know, over through evolution. We just have to get out. And we have to get out about nine months too early. So so what that does is creates a situation where where the baby unusually, like unlike other mammals really, is completely tuned in to mum for survival. So it's like a baby's awareness is, is very much out there. It's like they're out there and they will often, um, you know, really look to mum's well-being above their own. They'll actually prioritize mum's well-being above their own sometimes. So because that's their survival mechanism. So, so it's like they, we have to work with them both. They're they're like one thing, really, and um, very important. That and we don't want to blame the mum either. You know, mum new mums have got so much on their plate. The last thing you want to say is, "Oh, you know, your baby's struggling because you are so stressed." <laughs> that doesn't help anybody, right? Um, but we can offer some very very gentle um, support, and you know, again, just listen to what mum's been through because it probably wasn't that easy for most mums. But when you do work with mothers and babies, um, it's not necessarily to treat a musculoskeletal injury? Oh, yeah, it can be, because because mums can be, you know, a lot of pain if they have a cesarean section, you know, that, that's pretty debilitating for a few weeks after after giving birth. But, um, you know, a lot of mums have, you know, pelvic imbalances, they have pubic symphysis pain, they can have, uh, can have sciatic pain during pregnancy, after birth. Also, do you work with them also during pregnancy? Yeah, yeah. Is that part yeah, of the yeah. passion? Yeah, 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 no, absolutely. I yeah. think it's really wonderful to work with mums during pregnancy. Yeah. And you can work with them in lots of different ways. You know, a, a lot of things is around um, creating positivity, um, you know, empowerment. Um, because, you know, I think what's happened over the last few years has been very interesting in, in the sense that people have lost uh, a lot of trust in their own natural processes and their bodies to do stuff. You know, but this happened a lot with COVID in the sense that people kind of, it, it kind of felt that their bodies weren't safe anymore and that other bodies, other people's bodies weren't safe anymore. You know what I mean? That this whole message was that our, our bodies are not capable of fighting something off. And, and of course, with COVID, we had also this whole thing about a lack of connection. We couldn't see people's faces and that, that had a big effect on our nervous systems as well in terms of isolation. Um, but I think I think this this thing about I'm, I'm kind of passionate really about reconnection and so so uh, uh, and a lot of this Bowen does really it's like how do we reconnect uh, with the safety of our own bodies how can, how can we feel our bodies as a nurturing and safe space and it's the same thing with how can we connect with each other um, traditionally if you know if you look at how traditional people have healed themselves. It's always been through feeling and establishing a connection, a reconnection. So with, our, with their bodies, uh, with the earth, you know, with spirit, with each other. And a lot of what's happened over the whole COVID thing and with the whole climate change thing as well is that people have lost that connection with the earth because because the earth is seen now as something that, you know, for a lot of people feel that we've damaged it somehow. So that reconnecting with the earth can feel a kind of like two-edged thing. Like
There's a need to do it, but it's also painful. And that's very, very sad because we've always done that in the past. And this need to reconnect is so important. The need to reconnect with bodies, with our earth, with each other, and I'd say with spirit. And I, and I actually firmly believe that these kind of therapies like craniosacral therapy and the Bowen technique really help us to do that. And I think it's really crucial at this time that we allow that to happen. Super interesting stuff. Um, <laughs> look, I um, just for time purposes, we have to sure. we have to uh, wrap this up. Unfortunately, okay. no, that's fine. Um, no problem. But it really is. What? Oh. On the camera. <laughs> um, so this is my little booklet. The little booklet, but you've written <laughs> yeah. a couple books, right? Yes. Um, you you also you do live classes. You have online classes. You have online classes also with us at NAT. Sure. Um, so yeah, or Instagram, Facebook, you said, please tell uh, the listeners where they can uh, find information about you, information sure. about your classes and about what you do. Yeah. Um, yeah, please. Yeah, no, so uh, yes, I've written a few books. So I've written those little booklets, which have been translated into lots of different languages, um, which are kind of like for the general public. And then I've written two other books on Bowen, The Inside Story, um, and um, Using the Bowen Technique for Complex and Chronic Conditions another one and i've also written two big books on uh working with mums and babies there's one that's called choices in pregnancy and childbirth um which i'm really proud of actually um and it's around all the kind of choices that mums have to make around you know food and environmental aspects and all the things that can be really important in pregnancy and the choices around childbirth as well and um uh, you know, it's, uh, I think it's a wonderful book, but, <laughs> and, and then I've also done another one. I edited that one about uh, ways of working. So it's called an integrative approach to treating babies and children, which I edited and worked with a number of pre and prenatal educators around that. And, uh, I run two platforms, online platforms. So one for therapists called ehealthlearning.tv. And the other one is called ourbirthjourney.com, which is for um, initially for therapists working with mums and babies, we're actually opening that out now to for families who are interested in this kind of material I've been talking about. So please have a look. So that's ehealthlearning.tv and ourbirthjourney.com. Phenomenal. Um, so Mr. John Wilkes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure great. being with you here the, to record this episode. Uh, also the last couple of days, it was, I learned a lot great. from you. So uh, thank you very much. Oh, thanks, Danny. And thank you, Craig. Thanks.